Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Contending for the faith from the book of Jude. Let's take a look and we'll begin today in verse 8. This is Sermon 4. I told you we would probably be in the book for at least three sermons. Uh, I would say maybe three more. But I, I just, there's no sense in getting in a hurry. There's a lot of good truth here and trying to rush through it to make sure we don't get too bogged down. I don't know how, why would we do that. Is there another part of God's word more important we need to get to? We need to learn about what Jude is having to say because he is addressing us directly. All of us who are living in these last days, he said, there are those who are going to slip into the church unnoticed and you better figure out who they are. And basically that's what the book is about. He is going to begin in verse 8 and let me go ahead and tell you, Last week's message, we talked about some things that he says as far as the characteristics of these people. They're arrogant, they're prideful is one of the characteristics. They were immoral people, but he gives us some basic characteristics of them. This week, he's going to start in verse 8 and tell us why these folks are so dangerous for the church. Let's read together in verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile or blaspheme, blasphemos is the word, angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. We have to pause here. I'd hate for you to go home today and try to find that passage. You'd be a while. It's not in Scripture. It's in a book called The Assumption of Moses. It was a collection of Jewish writings that was supposedly a collection of things that Moses shared with Joshua before Joshua overtook his position as leader of the Israelite people. You remember he got them to the promised land. Joshua led them on in. It was a book that was very popular among the Jewish people, uh, The Assumption of Moses. I think we have about one copy of at least part of it. It dates back to about A.D. 500, so it's not a very good copy. It was never considered Scripture. But before you fall out with Jude for quoting from what we would call a pseudopigrapha, book, okay? Before we fall out with him, pseudo meaning false and grapho meaning writing, they were the, the, basically these books would be attributed to some author that really didn't write them. Sometimes uh, he'll quote another one before we're done, by the way. He'll quote the book of Enoch. Now, it wasn't written until after Jesus, so we know Enoch didn't write it. But they would put a, a, a Jewish patriarch or, a, or an important Jewish person's name as the author. It was just to honor that person. But it was just Jewish writings. It's not biblical writing. But, but again, before you fall out with Jude for doing that, remember I've quoted, and you've heard other preachers, we quote Plato, we quote... Lots of different people. That doesn't mean go home and get, uh, you know, Plato's Republic and add it to your biblical reading list, okay? He's just quoting here. And he's trying to say that while some people in this world 
they, they don't care. They have no respect for anybody. He says, let me give you a good example, Jews, from your own writing. He says, one time, you remember that story in the Assumption of Moses, and they're going, uh-huh. They went, uh-huh, a lot back then. He says, remember but that when that happened, that when Moses died, you, you, you remember, the devil came to the archangel Michael and said, I ought to be able to get his body. Because, you know, he sinned against God three times in particular, and he didn't get to go into the promised land. And since I kind of work as God's district attorney, I ought to be able to get his body, and I ought to be able to bury it wherever I want to. And it says that instead of the archangel Michael rebuking the devil even openly, he says, I'm not going to rebuke you. You are an important figure in, in this heavenly realm. But he said, I will say this, the Lord rebukes you. So Jude's point is, if the archangel Michael is going to let God do the rebuking, perhaps you and I should as well. But these men, verse 10, they revile the things which they do not understand. They blaspheme things because they don't understand them. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and have and pay for uh, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam and perish in the rebellion of Korah. We'll look at those in a moment. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear. They care for themselves, clouds without water, Carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. He is warning us. That in these last days, there will be those who will slip into the church. And here he gives us rather succinctly why they're dangerous. You won't make friends with them. You're, you're, you're dealing with a rattlesnake. You, you, don't, you don't pet him. You don't negotiate with, with, with him. You don't domesticate him. It's, it's impossible, he says, the people you are dealing with, if you think, oh, well, they're like us, they just have different ideas, or we shouldn't be so judgmental just because some people see Scripture maybe a different way. He says, don't even go there with them. He says, you're not dealing with an issue like that. You are dealing with someone who is like a hidden reef, a rock under the water that you don't see, and you'll be shipwrecked before you know it if you deal with them very long. First of all, he tells us why. He says these people are frightening. They're frightening. In verse 8, yet in the same way these men also by dreaming, they defile the flesh. And they secondly reject authority. And then thirdly, they revile angelic majesties. There's your triad if you remember that. He does that all through here. He gives us three things. By dreaming, they defile the flesh, reject authority. They even revile angelic majesties. They also defile the flesh, reject authority as well. These guys, he gives us the three characteristics of them. Mostly lust, rebellion, and irreverence. Boy, when I look at people in our world today that just, have, it's, it's like, it is like they just got to be, well, Paul said it himself. He said they're inventors of evil. 
They invent ways to blaspheme God. They invent ways to just spit in the face of God. They, they, anything that you tell them that is right, they will go out of their way to try to uh, absolutely do it a different way. They just are rebellious to the core. And, and some of the things that you and I have seen uh, man alive, I don't have to mention them. You can just go to the news. You can just see it. It doesn't matter. You won't have to go back a week. You won't even have to go back a day. Just open it up in the morning. I like to read the news, and you just open it up, and I promise you there will be something there every day now in our national newspapers that will make you go, wow, I did, that is just incredible. I posted an article on my Facebook page this week. I wish you would go and read it. It's not very long, but the Baptist Press just put out an article that because of the Information Act, we were finally able, or there was a group that was finally able to get their hands on some documents that at the University of Pittsburgh, they are harvesting parts from unborn children before they are dead. The reason they die is because they're pulling little things out of their body for scientific research that they need and then they let them die that was the one for yesterday there's another one today about something else by dreaming John Calvin said about this passage he says they're detached from reality he says they are delusional they they dream up things and and then he goes on if we writ put verse 10 with this he says these men they revile things they don't understand he says they're like animals they are like unreasoning animals and by these things they are destroyed i i i, I hate to hear people say boys that they're they're acting like animals and i know you just said it and i'll i'll give him a pass on that because he's inspired of God but we use it I think too casually nowadays because I want to tell you I know animals and I know people and yeah an animal will hurt you if he is afraid or scared or whatever I just uh man alive I saw the other day someone took a picture uh, of a mama grizzly bear standing up on her hind legs it was a beautiful picture but all I could think about was I wonder if three of her babies are behind that guy with the camera because somebody else will have to develop that film or whatever. That just shows you how old I am. But whatever it is to get that picture here, he won't be the one writing an article about it. I can tell you that. Because she's going to protect those babies. I can just tell you now. You won't talk her out of one of them. She's not going to give one of them up. She's not going to neglect them. Neglect them. And just, just think about that, how different animals are than humans. But she does it out of instinct. It is not because she has some emotional attachment. It is all out of instinct. So, yes, animals will hurt you. Animals will kill you. But they don't do it because they stayed up all night hating you. They don't sit around and think about ways to get back at you. Human beings are desperately wicked, but sometimes our desperation and depraved nature makes us look like wild animals with, without any sense whatsoever. They defile the flesh. The word know is a word for for stained he says they're stained it's like a spot on them they can't get off and I thought about what Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 1 15 he says to the pure all things are pure but to those who are defiled are stained and unbelieving nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience are defiled they constantly are are, are living, wondering who's out to get me next, or are always with some kind of measure of suspicion in their mind because inside of them they're stained. And, and, and to the pure, they, they can always find something pure to see. But to those who are impure, they can always find something impure on which to focus. He goes on, he says, these people are frightening. They're frightening. I, 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 you know, years ago, I'd have had to come up with some examples. You, you, you see how people 
in our world today act in public. It's incredible. Secondly, they're not only frightening, but they're foolish. Here's another triad for us. He says, they have gone the way of Cain, or they have fallen into the doctrine of Balaam, or they have begun to act like Korah. What is the way of Cain? I won't spend as much time on the other two, but let's give Cain a little measure of time here because he is so pivotal in, in, in the history of salvation. When we're in Genesis 3, he, he, he comes along in Genesis 4, or his story is elaborated there. In Genesis 3, we have a devil that is tempting people. But in Genesis 4, there's no devil even mentioned. We're, then we've quit talking about the devil. We started talking about human flesh and human depravity. That was temptation in Genesis 3, but in Genesis 4, it was pride. And there's confession in Genesis 3, and then there's denial, though, in Genesis 4. Refusal to accept any responsibility. The punishment is at least accepted in Genesis 3. It is rejected in Genesis 4, we've moved kind of to a new place when it comes to sin. Let me tell you what the way of Cain is. The way of Cain is basically saying, I will take before God whatever I want to to worship Him. And I'll paraphrase him. If that's not good enough, that's just too bad. And God says then it's going to be too bad. God even went to Cain. That's odd. You don't see that a lot in Scripture. He even went to Cain. He says, you know you're messing up. You know you're messing up. We, we might wonder what was going on, but the book of Hebrews tells us, well, God rejected Cain's offering. He accepted Abel's offering, but... He, he, in, Gen, in Hebrews 11, he rejected Cain's offering. He decided, I'll bring something to God, and I will decide what it is, and I will decide that it is okay. And so the way of Cain is a religion without faith, righteousness, based on character and good works. The way of Cain is the way of pride. A man establishes his own righteousness and rejecting or rejects the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now you might think, well, how is it that we could possibly do that? I think of another popular passage. I hate reading to you, but this is the Word of God here I'm about to read. Matthew 7, 22 says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Nothing wrong with anything on that list. Nothing. And then I will declare to them, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, how was what they did, how do you say that that is lawlessness? They didn't mention adultery. It, they, they didn't say, well, we only got drunk a few times. It, they, they don't mention things like that. The things they mention are sound like good things, but they're what one theologian calls damnable good works. You can tell I don't cuss a lot. They're those good works. We did these things. It's like someone today saying, well, I, I, might, not, I might not be what Preacher Mike thinks says the, I need to be. Forget about what Preacher Mike says. I can go ahead and tell you that now. But I this and I that. And, 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 and I, I'll tell you, boy, uh, I try to treat people right, okay? There, that's something you could bring before God rather than uh, falling before Him on your face and repenting of your sin. You could even say, I, I, I gave. Uh, I, I gave to the Red Cross. Uh, I, I gave to the whatever. I think Red Cross just takes blood. But, but whatever it is, I, I did all of those things. I, 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 
I, I treated people right. I, I was a decent person. You can pile all of that up and you can bring it to God and say, God, this right here ought to be good enough. And when Pastor Mike preaches about falling before God and saying, I'm a depraved sinner and my best is nothing but filthy rags and God, I need your righteousness as a free gift and I need to die to self and I need you to forgive my sorry, sinful soul you want to bring those other things instead of doing that you'll be like Cain maybe you've already decided well I may not be one of those that's walked the aisle or I may I hear people all the time well I don't I don't go to church I'm not saying you, you could put that on the list too is that that's on a lot of people's list I can tell you, the only way to have a relationship with God is to fall before him and say, God, my very best is worthless. And I won't show up on that last day with an argument. I won't have my attorney with me with a folder full of paperwork. I won't have affidavit signed by my neighbor about how I cut his grass when he was sick. I won't have any of that. All I'm going to have is your grace. And God's going to tell you, well, that's all you need. That's all you need. The way a king says, oh, I can do it my way. All that sounds simple, but I can tell you there's a lot of people in this world that they're going to do it their way. They're going to do it their way. The era of Balaam, uh, that's a long story. It's in the book of Numbers, starting about chapter 22 of the book of Numbers. But basically, Balaam was hired by Balak, who was the king of Moab. Balaam was not an Israelite. Balaam lived somewhere over about where modern-day Iraq is. But he sent word to Balaam, got Balaam to come to him, finally. But he sent a large group to Balaam saying, I will pay you because I got a group of people that showed up on my doorstep and there's a lot of them. Well, it was the Israelites. And God told Balaam, look, I've blessed these people and you need to leave them alone. And if you remember, finally God told Balaam, well, you can go, but you go when I say go and say what I tell you to say. Well, the next morning, I don't know if he left too early or what the deal was, but he saddled his donkey and took off. And his donkey kind of ran into something on the way over there. And you remember that part of the story, I know. There was an angel standing there with a sword. The donkey could see it, and Balaam couldn't. That's a whole nother sermon right there. One time, the donkey ran into a rock wall and crushed Balaam's foot, and he was just beating the ever-living tar out of it. And, and then finally, the donkey took off down across a field and, 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 and just went running wild, and, and he beat the tar out of it again. And after the third beating, finally, the donkey turns around and looks at Balaam and says, why in the world are you beating me like this? Finally, Balaam is allowed to see the angel. And the angel tells him, he says, you better be glad the donkey saw me. Had you gone any further, I would have killed you with this sword. Hmm. Finally, Balaam does go to Balak. He tells him, he says, look, set me up some altars here. Let me see what I can do. We set up seven altars, and they put all kinds of animals on them and sacrificed them, and Balaam went over there to curse God's people. And before it was over with, he was singing their praises and talking about how they loved their God and how that they would be an eternal nation and all of that. And Balak's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I wanted you to do. I, I, I'm paying you to curse them, not bless them. So he must have had a little bit of church in him because he thought, well, if we move to a new location and get some new stuff, it'll work. So they moved over to another mountain, and they set up some more altars, and they tried it again. And finally, the third time, Balak looked at Balaam, 
and said, man, if you try to curse them one more time, they're going to be so blessed nobody's ever going to defeat them. And Balaam basically said, that's exactly what I've been trying to tell you. These are the people of God. And the story gets a little complicated at that point because it doesn't seem like Balaam does anything wrong. But if you go on and you get to about chapter 31, it says that Balaam somehow or another let Balak know that if you can infiltrate that camp down there with some wicked women and get those men to sin against their God, He will take his hand of protection off of them. He says, these people that sneak into our congregation sometimes that we don't notice, they're like Cain. Sometimes they're like Balaam and sometimes they're also like the rebellion of Korah. That's in Numbers chapter 16. And I'll give you that one quickly, but Basically, Korah and 250 other people. If you can get that many people together on anything, man, that pumps you up, even if you're wrong, and he was. Korah and a few other leaders went to Moses and Aaron and told them that you two call all the shots. There are more of us around here that can hear the voice of God than just you. You're not the only ones around here that ought to be telling people what they can do and what they can't do. Moses never, ever wanted the job to start with. But he knew, boy, God is not going to like this. And so almost immediately Moses falls on his face before God. And they finally decide, and I'm skipping a lot, but they're going to have a showdown, and they say, well... And and Korah was from the tribe of Levi, but he was not a priest like Aaron was. So basically they set up a little contest and they said, well, we're going to let Aaron offer incense and we'll let you offer incense and we'll see if God accepts your offering. And so the next day they get out there and they start this mess. And I can tell you when the wrong people lifted up incense to God, man, I want to tell you something, God did not like it at all and God opened up the ground and swallowed them alive and killed them and the children of Israel you have to tell this part were like wow Moses we're so proud of you and Aaron for standing up for what is right man we can't wait till Moses appreciation day We want to give you a new Bible or something. I I, I don't know. Boy, you did so good. I'd love to tell you that's what they said. But you know what they really said? They looked at Moses and Aaron, and they said, you two have killed the people of God. I know some of them that fell off in that hole while they were good folks. You've run off people from our church, Moses, that I thought they were fine people, and now here they are gone all because of this shenanigan you had to pull. You know what God said? (laughs) He told Moses, he says, get back out of the way because I'm going to kill some of them now. And they started falling dead in rows. And Aaron grabbed some incense, put it in a pan, and ran out into the middle of them. And the ones that were falling dead, the rows stopped when it got to Aaron holding up the pan. I don't know about you, but if I'd have been in that crowd, I'd have been doing this. That's what happened. He describes the people that will come into our churches. They'll be like that. And I, I, don't, I don't know of a better way to describe it. I, 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 one of the hardest things that we have ever done here that is absolutely 100% biblical, but it has been one of the most difficult challenges, even at Cornerstone fellowship in most churches they would not even entertain the idea even though it is 100% biblical and that is the idea of not voting most people grew up in a church that was a democracy that's not how God set up his church he set it up like a family we don't vote here we vote on two things the annual budget and we vote on who becomes an elder if we we bring in a new 
elder. We vote on the first one because we have some kind of legal obligation. But honestly, in my heart, I wish we voted on nothing. I know it sounds crazy. There are churches around right here in this county that would have a cow if you mention not voting. But that's not how God set the church up. He set it up like a family. And I'll ask you, how many of you at your house vote? What do you kids want for breakfast? Gummy bears or or grits and eggs? How many want to go to school today? Let's see, show hands. It's a family, and yes, there's stress and strain and grumbling, and there has to be trust, and there has to be respect and all of those things, but that, that is what's missing in a lot of our churches because we started out going down the wrong road from the very beginning. Oh, I've seen churches. Some of you have too. Some of you are way older than me, George. I've seen churches, man, spend two weeks trying to figure out where to go to buy the belt for the lawnmower. And then about the time they got it settled, somebody spoke up and said, well, I just remember my brother-in-law down at his place sells belts. Let me check with him, see if he can get us a better deal. And you start all over again. I have a say. Those are the ones that slip into our churches unaware. They're frightening, foolish. Thirdly, they're fatal. We will, we will move on. We're doing all right. They're fatal. In verse 12, these men, they're like hidden reefs. He says they're like rocks under the water that you don't see. And when you're trying to port a ship and you don't see the rocks, it shipwrecks you. And, and, and it's a call for vigilance. If you're not careful, spalades is the word. They're like hidden hunks of rock. And you run into them. You won't notice them. You could go home today and say, I'm glad that we don't have any of those kind of people in our church. I don't know that we don't. Now, I don't think we do, but I don't know that we don't. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that because these are not rocks that stick out of the water. These are rocks that stay under the water. These are rocks that let these little things seize. These are rocks that hears a sermon like I'm preaching right now, and inside there's just like a fire that billows up in them, and it's like, yeah, I don't, I'm not so sure that is biblical. Anything you ever hear from this pulpit, I beg you, go home and look it up in the Word of God. And if it's not biblical, please let me be the first one you tell. I'll repent before God in a heartbeat. They're not only foolish, frightening, fatal, they're feckless. Verse 12, they're carried along by the winds. They don't stay long. Oh, they might come one week and act like, boy, I love it, and they'll stay till they find something they don't love. They show up now and then, blow in, blow out. You cannot count on them. You never know when they're going to be there, what's going to make them mad, what's going to make them leave. And, and, and here's one of the reasons for that. A lot of people, when they go to a church, instead of going there looking for Jesus, they go there looking for themselves. Now, I don't mean they're planning on running into somebody that looks like them or a twin or a double. But they're going there to see, well, you know, I like that place. I felt welcome. I hope you feel welcome here today. I do. I hope you feel really welcome. I hope people shake your hand. I hope they love on you. I hope they care deeply that you're here. I hope they find out your name. I hope all of that happens to you today. Uh, But I hope way more than that, that when you leave here today, you feel like, wow, that's a place right there where Jesus feels welcome. They wouldn't shut up about him. 
the songs were so vertical, how great thou art, and all of that. They were singing to him. And, and some of the songs I didn't even know, but the words I could not even ignore because, man, when they sing, they sing to Jesus. And when they preach, they preach about Jesus. And in Sunday school, they taught about Jesus. Everything there's about Jesus. I promise you, Jesus will feel like they're just worshiping him over there. I hope and pray, hallelujah, that's exactly how you feel. Because that's what we came here to do. Worship Jesus. A lot of times we're looking for preaching that honors our ideas. Man, it breaks my heart. But I want to tell you, if you feel like the LGBTQ group, those who suffer from that, and I say suffer, I know they may not all treat it that way, but those who struggle with that temptation or maybe have embraced that lifestyle, I, I, it breaks my heart. But those issues, abortion, all the things that, that you hear me run in the ground, I promise you there's Southern Baptist churches in this county where they can go. And the preaching there will affirm every one of those ideas. Oh, yeah. Not a problem. Eventually, if you keep looking for a place that fully suits you, you'll wind up where you started. And that's back at your house. And then you'll be able to join that large group that says, I'm just not a part of organized religion. You'll get to climb that, that precipice of moral high ground. Say, I just don't, don't get involved with organized religion because it just never suited you enough. That's the kind of people Jude says will slip in and you won't even notice it. Man, number five, they're feckless, fatal, foolish, frightening. They're fearless. Notice number in verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast. When they feast with you without fear. The love feast was the meal, the celebratory meal they had right before they took communion. And communion is not an evangelistic outreach. Communion is for the children of God only. Jesus didn't invite the 5,000 to come in and have that last supper with him. Did you notice that? That was for his disciples and his disciples alone. You don't invite people to communion hoping that maybe they'll get saved. It's not an evangelistic outreach. As a matter of fact, worship itself is always going to be, if it's done right and done with God as the centerpiece of it, will always be tough on people who do not know Him. Because by the time we give God the attention that He deserves, you may not get any. So we give our attention to the Lord, he says, no, these people are fearless. He says, they show up without fear. They are at your love feast. They come to the thing, the most sacred ceremony, if you call it that, the, most, the holy time of worship that you have. They sit there without a crumb of conviction, and they partake of the bread, and they partake of the cup, and they look just like the rest of you, and you would never be able to tell the difference. Dave, Dave and Sarah, and Sarah is his name, not Dave and Sarah. He wrote a book. I, I didn't know him. I had to look him up. But his book title caught my attention. After looking him up and finding out that he was a rock-solid pastor in Tennessee, I bought the book. The book is entitled The Unsaved Christian. That's what got my attention. It's subtitled, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. In this book, he talks about America and how that 
the way people can feel like they have got it as well as anybody else has got it, saved as anybody else is, and yet not ever know Jesus a bit in their heart, have never confessed her sinfulness, have never had a real relationship with Jesus Christ. He says the way they can do it is they can become cultural Christians. He said, in America, this is the land of the unreached and the overchurched. A lot of people are lost and they go to church all the time. This is what he says. Cultural Christianity is a religion that is practiced by more Americans than any other faith or religion. Its participants can be found in Catholic or Protestant churches in the South and the Midwest, on high school football fields, at patriotic celebrations and Around family dinner tables, it looks and sounds very Christian on the surface, but is merely Christian by culture rather than conviction. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not part of the equation. In cultural Christianity, when it comes to Jesus, he's highly admired. A lot of cultural Christians highly admire Jesus. But they don't see him as really being needed as far as salvation is concerned. They almost treat him like a mascot. They almost treat him like a, a, a good luck charm. Matter of fact, Flannery O'Connor, who is uh, an American poet or American writer, author, I love what he says about the South. I'll talk about that because that's where I'm from, if you didn't pick up on the accent. He says, in the South, we're more haunted by Jesus than possessed by him. He said, (laughs) he was talking about the fact that when somebody starts to eat, before we say the blessing in the South, man, there's people spitting food all over the table. (laughs) I forgot we didn't ask the blessing. It's like we're haunted by Jesus. We leave the house, get a mile down the road, headed to vacation. Man, Dad grabs that wheel and yanks it into a service station. We didn't pray before we left. Phew. It's a wonder we survived that half mile. Once we've prayed, we're good to go. We treat him like a ghost that haunts our lives. We got to pay a little homage to him. I've been to some NASCAR races, and I've seen a hundred plus thousand hold up an ice cold bud in the air while they prayed for the driver's safety. I'll at least give them this. That's one of the few sports events where they still pray. See the redneck in me coming out? Trying to justify that a little. We're haunted by Jesus. It's a cultural thing. It has nothing to do with having a real relationship with God. When it comes to God, he's like a mother nature figure to a lot of people that I've met who are they, they live like cultural Christians. He's a distance force. Preaching, preaching to cultural Christians, they, they see it as, it well, it ought, to be, it ought to be like self-help using biblical themes. And there's some passages that will not ever be useful. They're just so full of bloodshed, and they're so full of, of that horrible place called hell and fire and damnation and judgment and all of that. And none of those passages are ever going to be usable. But there's some passages in the Bible that encourage and lift up, and that's what we ought to hear from the pulpit. Welcome to cultural Christianity. And the cross... One of our brothers this morning in my office prayed, God, let us feel the impact. Leave here today understanding the impact of the cross. I believe if we fully could right now somehow or another gain a full, complete insight into the importance and the impact of what happened on the cross, I don't know that we could find our cars by dark this evening. But cultural Christians think Jesus died a martyr, not a savior. 
I'm supposing they believe he must have gotten saved like the rest of us. Oh, he didn't walk an aisle, but you know him. He cared for his neighbor. Cultural Christianity. I believe cultural Christianity is indeed the most underrated mission field in America. Well, last of all, they're frightening, foolish, fatal, feckless, fearless. I wonder what the last one starts with. They are fruitless. They are fruitless. In verse 12, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Autumn trees. Autumn trees, that's when they're supposed to bear fruit. You wouldn't go out to most fruit trees out of season and expect to see fruit. It's just not there. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. But in the autumn, it's when a lot of trees in that part of the world and in our, this part of the world, it's when they bear their fruit. An autumn tree without fruit, it doesn't even make sense. But we have folks Jude says they'll slip in your churches unaware. One way you can tell, though, is when it's fruit-bearing time, there won't be any. It's like the tares among the wheat. Tares is a, it's a little plant, looks just exactly like wheat. You can't tell the difference unless you're an expert. A lot of farmers could not tell the difference, Really? The only way to tell the difference is to wait till harvest time, and when you open up the little pods on the darnel, the tares that Jesus talked about, there'll be little black seeds, and they're poison, and they will ruin the wheat. You see, fruit-bearing time kind of lets the cat out of the bag. Autumn trees without fruit. Man, there are people that you know and I do too. They've gone to church longer than this church has been here. And they couldn't really tell you one thing they've ever done in their whole entire life that God did through them. Everything in their life they shot away from, ran from, whatever. Can't do it. Well, that's the starting point. When you figure out you can't do it, that's what God was wanting you to hear, wanting you to say. He was wanting to step into you with his power and do it through you. And then you begin to bear what's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's not your fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. All of those things are fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's fruit, but it's born out in you. You allow the Spirit to have its way and its will in your life, and God does something miraculous. There are a lot of people. Man, I know churches. They've never done anything they couldn't afford. Oh, man. They needed something so badly. I mean, really needed something an addition, a missions project or whatever. They prayed and prayed and prayed, and before they went and borrowed the money, they made sure they had at least that much in the bank already, made sure they had enough coming in to where they could make at least two, if not three payments a month, and then they had the gall to step out and say, we're just going to pray and step out on faith and let God carry us through this. A lot of people in a lot of churches spend their life doing what they can afford What's their thing, you know? That's just not my thing. I can tell you, standing right here is just not my thing. It's just not my thing. I never had to do this. I love, you know what I do as a pastime? I know a lot of people golf. I do enjoy fishing and hunting, things like that. But you know what I enjoy more? I'm not sure if the sport's going to catch on everywhere, but I love doing it. 
Come over to the house sometimes. We'll do it together. I love minding my own business. I love it. I love not ever saying anything about anybody's life. I had the attitude that I don't care if the whole world goes to hell. It is not my place to tell people what they ought to do and ought not to do. And I never want to be a part of that. And what did God call me to do? He might as well call me to be a gymnast. Hey, he's God. Be careful before you laugh at that. Imagining me on the balance beam. I can just tell you, we need to watch out, church. I do believe God is wanting to use us in a great and mighty way. And some are going to come and some are going to go. I looked out this morning. I had two people that told me a few weeks ago they were never going to miss again. They had learned their lesson from straying away from God. Came to my office. Neither one of them sitting here this morning. Wind caught them this morning. Poof. Took them away. Those are the kind of people you spend a lot of time on worrying about. Why did they leave? I've had preachers, people come to me, church members come to me, preacher, what happened to so-and-so? Sometimes I say nothing. Nothing happened. They left the same person they were when they came. They didn't come to be changed. They came to check it out, kick the tires, and that's what they did. Let's pray together. God, I pray you help us, Lord. Help us to not be mean or ill will with any person on this earth, God. Help us to be as loving and as gracious as you can possibly make us. But, Lord, help us to be not only as innocent as doves, but as wise as serpents. Lord, I pray that we'd realize and know that these folks who come to hinder, Lord, they don't announce their presence. Help us to understand what your servant Jude is trying to write to us and tell us. That they slip in and then they blend. And then when we come to those most sacred, most holy times, those times, God, where we would maybe think that no one in their right mind would participate unless their heart was in it, Lord, without any measure of fear, they sit right among us, God. Lord, and they blaspheme your name. I pray you'd help us, Lord, with that. Help us to be the church you'd have us be. I hope, Lord, you help us to grow the COVID thing. It hit us hard. But, Lord, we are beginning to see growth. But I pray, God, that no one would ever come in this place and want to come back because they felt like we worshiped them. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.